0: Hi, folks. So it's amazing, isn't it, that we're here in our kitchen and you're wherever you are, and somehow by the wonders of technology, we're connected. And it certainly is true that the church has managed to get online and uh, go worldwide, really, in this season in a way we probably never would have done. So we're going to continue now with our series on Earth as in Heaven. And uh, we're looking at the basis for social action. This is a series on the kingdom of God and social action and uh, I'm taking as a kind of working definition uh, the social action being working for the well-being of wider society in every aspect and it certainly is the case that post COVID, or at least as we emerge, many people, social commentators, church leaders, counsellors are suggesting that we may well hit a wave of need. And there will be a time when social action on behalf of the church, but also wider afield, is greatly needed. People coming out of situations uh, where perhaps they're not in employment like they were. They've got financial worries where mental health issues have just become very prevalent. So we are going to need to raise our game in this respect. And I just want to recap before we uh, get stuck in today to what I said last week. I started to tell the story of uh, the biblical basis for social action, telling the biblical story and looking at the biblical worldview. And so just to recap there. So previously on on earth as it is in heaven, we looked at the origins of the kingdom, the pattern of the kingdom, a world created in beautiful harmony by God. However you think that happened, a perfect world. Scripture's clear on that. There was a fall. And again, however you think it happened, whatever you think the Bible teaches, there was a perished kingdom. We have chosen independence. And because of that, we come from under God's loving protection. But thankfully, God has a plan Thirdly, to restore the kingdom. And he came in the form of Jesus. The kingdom was present. And we saw last week that the cross redeems all things. The cross does not just redeem men and women, young people, although that is the pinnacle of what the cross achieves but also the cross redeems the whole of creation. He was in Christ, reconciling all things to himself. Well, I just want to jump to the end of the story now. So spoiler alert, if you haven't yet read the end. And I want to speak briefly on the consummation. How will everything end in this story? Well, there's going to be a perfected kingdom and I'm sure many of us particularly perhaps over the last 14 months but maybe generally cannot wait for that day when Christ returns when the kingdom is fully restored there should be a hallelujah in at least one or two homes right now I feel this in my own spirit Don't you long for that day when Jesus comes and makes everything new. Revelation 22 tells us this. In Revelation, we've heard that he's going to wipe every tear. He's going to gather every tribe. And then Revelation 22 says this. no longer will there be any curse the throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads there will be no more night they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever and Bible commentators tell us that this passage has echoes of Eden. We see here, Eden being restored. There's a river flowing through the city. There's the tree of life. There's the presence of God. Don't you remember that passage in in, uh, Genesis where it talks about the Lord God walking in the cool of the day with humanity. Don't you long for that time again? Well, the presence of God, his throne is there. We do see echoes of Eden where things are put right. It says there'll be no curse any longer. We won't suffer anymore. That's a word for someone to hang on to. And God himself will be the light of the world. Well, what are we to do then in the meantime? Do we just kind of get comfortable, a bit slothful? We can become like that. I wanna speak mainly today then on a second aspect of this restoration story. How are things going to be put right? And we're gonna look here at the proclaimed kingdom. This is our task now. Prior to his ascension, Jesus gives another global mandate to his church. Luke records in chapter 24, Verse 46 onwards. He told them, Jesus says, This is what is written the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high and then Luke continues the keynote verse really in the book of Acts chapter one verse eight he says but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth so the church is called in the power of the Spirit to bless the nations remember that Charged to Abraham, I will make you a blessing and you will bless the nations. We're called to bless the nations in every facet of societal life, in the power of the Spirit, making disciples and seeing society transformed. Well, how did this happen then in the New Testament? What's the New Testament picture for this? The apostles the teams of apostles set about planting kingdom communities. This social action, this global mandate, this blessing of the nations was to be done in community, folks. Local churches were to be planted. And these churches, these kingdom communities would go viral throughout the Roman Empire and the gospel is still going viral in parts of the world from this seabed of these few disciples in Jerusalem, timid, afraid, empowered by the spirit and by 312 AD the church had grown to such an extent that a Roman emperor owned Christianity as the faith of the empire now I have to say that brought with it problems the problems of what we call Christendom but leaving that aside this happened by the power of the spirit through kingdom communities and there's no reason why it can't happen again folks it is happening in parts of the world but it can happen in our nation so the church was an agency of the kingdom. It wasn't the kingdom. It isn't the kingdom, but it is an agency of the kingdom. And at times in history, we've got that wrong. We have thought that the church is the kingdom. So what lessons then from the church in the New Testament and how might we learn these lessons? How might they impact us as we set about focusing here on social action? bringing about the well-being of society. Well, there's three things I want to talk about this morning. And the first of these is this. The church operated in a creation context, a creation context. You remember Genesis 128? Uh, Tim down there at the Beck Center is going to flash this up now. I won't bother reading it. But basically, humanity was given this mandate to See the world transformed, to steward the world. And this word fill is that that meaning is to complete. We were charged as humanity to bring creation to completion. The material world matters. It's not just about the spiritual. This was the Hebrew worldview that physical and spiritual mattered. The Greeks veered from this. There was dualistic thinking that it was the spiritual that was important, that the material didn't matter. As a consequence, some of them tried to bring the um, the, the physical under control. They they lived ascetic lives. They 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 were tough on themselves because they just saw the material physical body as sinful. But equally, some of them said, "Well, it doesn't matter how we live physically. Then, if the spiritual is what's important, it doesn't matter how we live physically." And sadly, some of us um, in certainly in our Western society, but even in the church. We can think that it's just about getting to heaven. It doesn't matter how I live. Discipleship is whole of life. It's holistic. It matters how we live our lives in righteousness day by day. Paul, this concept of completion, fullness for creation was important. He was a Jew and had a Hebrew worldview. And in Ephesians 4, He says this, verse 10 onwards, talking about Christ, he says he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It says here, Christ fills the universe. Now, it certainly does mean his presence is everywhere. But I think it also means taking the meaning of this word filled to being complete or perfect. It is in Christ. That creation is brought to completion and it tells us that his church is to attain the measure of fullness of Christ. We are to cooperate with Christ by his spirit to bring creation, to bring human culture to fulfilment, to bring it under the lordship of Christ. This is quite different thinking to how we've often thought in the church. James Thwaites, who wrote a book called The Church Beyond the Congregation, he talks about the horizon of our mission being not just the church. The limits of our influence is not just to be the church. This is what he says. Rather than starting with the gathering and working out from there, God's primary reference points for our lives are to be found in the large and diverse setting and sound of creation. God intends that these establish the largest context for our life, relationships and work as saints. It is within the creation setting that the church gathering must find its place not the other way around. What he's saying there is, is the church is here on earth to bring creation to fulfilment, not just to work out how to do church. I'll come back to that. What's he saying? The church needs to be fit for purpose. The church and local churches need to be fit For their mission, and our mission is society, culture, and all of creation. We're talking here about ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the theology of the church. The church, uh, the Greek word for church is ecclesia, it means the called out ones. So, this is ecclesiology, and for too long. We've asked only ecclesiological questions, questions about church. Andy Roxburgh puts it this way. He says the 16th century reformation bequeathed us a set of questions that were largely church questions. And they still shape our imagination, namely, what kind of church do we need and how do we make that kind of church work. Have you experienced this in churches you've belonged to? I know I have. I have personally, I know I've got caught up with questions about how do we do church? How do we make church work? How do we make church attractive? Whereas actually, I think what the Bible teaches is let's live our lives as disciples in the world, seeing culture transformation, society transformed and. Will just be attractive anyway. We certainly get caught up with this. So, the parameters of our work as church is not just the four walls of the church, it's society, it's culture. We need a missional ecclesiology, a way of doing church that is suited for that. Mission. And that certainly includes social action, seeing the transformation of human systems that are unjust, reversing poverty and racism and all injustices. So, firstly, the creation was the context. Secondly, these churches in the New Testament were counter cultural. And we need to be. If our social action is to be effective, it has to be countercultural. Well, what was the culture of these communities? Look at this passage in Acts 2. Many of you will have seen this many times, and there's a lot in this. I'm just going to pick out a few things. There are other similar passages in Acts 4, in Acts. It talks about the disciples, and it says this. They broke bread in their homes. We're going to do that today. And ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So what it says there, what it tells us is this countercultural living will lead to our numbers increasing to us seeing people saved. We don't have to make it about the numbers. We don't have to make it about trying to be attractive. We just have to live counterculturally under the power of the Spirit in the way God wants us to. Well, what elements do we see here in this passage were countercultural? And just to say at the outset, I think outset, I think all of these can be summarized really by saying this was a loving community. So all the facets I'm going to explain here essentially boil down to that. The disciples loved one another. What were the elements we see here? Well, firstly, there was community and belonging. Do you notice they, the words are they all, everyone, together. It's these inclusive, inclusive communal words there's one word I absolutely love. It's in verse 46. It's not translated particularly strikingly in the NIV. Verse 46 talks about with one mind. I think it says in the NIV something about being together. It's the word homo thumadon. It's taken from two uh, Greek words, homo meaning the same and thumadon meaning passion. What does it say? There was a passionate oneness. To these disciples. That's challenging. That is very, very challenging. Folks, is there a passionate oneness to your Christianity and my Christianity? Are we passionate about seeing us, connecting, relating, loving one another? Does it impact us when one suffers? Does the other part of the body suffer? Or can we kind of Just dismiss, we say a quick prayer and move on. There's to be a passionate oneness. And let me tell you, this will speak to the world. If we can create a loving togetherness, a loving community, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. It will speak to a world that is fragmenting relationally all over the place. And of course, in the area of social action, many of the issues that we need to address are caused by a lack of community. There's the loss of the sense of family and community, and all the mental health issues that come from a lack of a sense of belonging somewhere. And of course, the selfishness by which we live, greed, which harms others because we don't see others as being in the image of God and men and women that we need to care for. Let's crack on. Community and belonging was a countercultural element. Secondly, they had a commitment. It says they were devoted to one another, to the koinonia, the communion, the fellowship, that sense of community. They devoted to the word, they were devoted to Christ remembering him in the breaking of bread. It was devotion, not to an institution. I'm not talking about signing up on a list, you know, membership and all of that. We may think those things are good, but it's about commitment to a family, a body of believers. And again, this will speak to society. If there are believers who will commit to others, Uh, In in another life, when I was a younger man, I used to do youth work in London. We used to work on estates there, quite rough estates in London. And it did seem to me that part of doing that youth work was just turning up, just being there has great effect. That will speak. And it's countercultural. So they were committed. There was the miraculous. There were signs and wonders jails opened chains were broken society again will take notice and i think even in the area of social action and maybe this is a word for some of us here that have a heart for social action we will see if we step into ministering and seeing healing to the broken and the hurting we will see god provide miraculously is it finances will need to fulfil a vision? Is it buildings will need to fulfil a vision? God's heart is with the poor and he will work miraculously if we will step into those areas. Fourthly, I think they were generous and how many social action issues are caused because of a lack of generosity, because of selfishness or greed. So many of the world's problems are caused by materialism and the pursuit of wealth and the pursuit of possessions at the cost to others and particularly the poor around the world. The culture here was generosity. And we can only be countercultural in this way if we are free by the power of the Spirit from striving for the material. I've got a couple of quotes here this morning by one of my heroes, Jim Elliott. He was a a missionary, uh, died in 1952 as just a young man, 29 years old, but he knew what it was to live fully for Christ. He says this about this element of materialism. He says, Father, let me be weak, that I might loose my clutch on everything temporal. My life, my reputation, my possessions. Lord, let me loose the tension of the grasping hand. Rather, open my hand to receive the nail of Calvary as Christ's was opened. That I, releasing all, might be released, unleashed from all that binds me now. He thought heaven, yea, equality with God, not a thing to be clutched at. So let me release my grasp how material things can get a hold of us we chase them down or maybe a material situation circumstances they get a hold of us jim elliott prays lord loose my grip that i may be free to live for you next there was joy and gladness Wouldn't that make a difference in the world if by the spirit we were just full of his joy and gladness? And as a result of all of this, the favor of God rested on this church. Another countercultural element. The world was impressed by their sacrificial lifestyle, by their giving to others, by their commitment to one another. A guy called Alan Crider, looking at the growth of the early church, says that the church grew by fascination. People were just struck by these countercultural lifestyles. That's challenging, isn't it? We need to ask the Lord to help us to live in that way. And so finally, then. The world will take notice of a countercultural church. But that church, thirdly, also needs to confess a coming Christ. There's been disputes in the church in the past between what might be called the liberal wing. It's seen as emphasising social action at the expense of the proclamation of the cross, Christ and personal salvation. Evangelicals have sought to live and have sought to be faithful to scripture and the preaching of the cross. We are an evangelical church. It's one of the things we stand for, the proclamation of Christ and the need for individuals to be saved. But it is undoubtedly true that at times the evangelical church has focused on personal salvation and eternity, spiritual matters at the cost of a world that is hurting and broken. And hopefully we can be about putting that right. But we need then to name the name. You see that passage we read in Acts 2 verses 42 to 46 was preceded by Acts 2 37 to 41. You don't get this lifestyle, this community without Christ and his cross look at what acts 2 37 41 says it's acts 38 sorry it says peter has preached christ and then he says repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the lord our god will call With many others, sorry, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3000 were added to their number that day. 3000 baptized. We're about to baptize in the next few weeks, hopefully, maybe three. That's good. 3000 in one day. It was a baptism into Christ and his church. Jesus, it was understood, was at the centre of his church. Jesus was at the centre of a disciple's life and we are baptised into him. It says repent, Peter said repent and believe in the name that is above, as we know, Every name. These disciples understood that Jesus was at the center of this creation context. He was supreme over all. That he was at the center of this countercultural lifestyle. Only by the Holy Spirit can we live free of the world's trappings. And he's at the center of the kingdom coming again, the eschaton, the end. Things the early church lived very conscious of the return of Christ and if I may be so bold in a way we perhaps don't we don't necessarily live conscious of eternity Peter here in Acts 2 he warns them to flee this corrupt generation. It probably wasn't a generation any more corrupt than any other generation. What Peter was saying here was this, though. Listen, you don't live for this world. You don't live for the material here. Live to see it transform, but that's not what you live for. We live ultimately for Christ and for eternity with him. So to close, as we've thought about a basis for social action we understand then we're to engage with the pain and hurt in the world now but we do that we are more free to do that as we live in the light of eternity this world is not to trap us because it's not our home they were looking for a city not their own, that was to come. And they lived for that, it says in Hebrews 11. We're going to take communion now and Ali's going to lead us through this. And one of the things we're told to do is to do this until he comes. Communion is a reminder that Jesus is coming again. And as we embrace communion, examine ourselves. Let's be asking ourselves, are we committed to this loving community? Are we creating this sense of belonging? Are we committed to Christ in our discipleship and seeking to live counterculturally for Him? There will be challenges. The world won't accept this. Many will find it hard, but it's worth it. There's a reward for us. And we will see society transformed as a result.